Hey everybody, this is Pastor Terry. Thank you so much for stopping by here at the Grace for a Journey podcast. So glad to have you. Thank you again for being with us. If you're a first-timer, welcome. If you're a return listener, thank you so much for listening again. What we're going to be talking about on these special podcasts over the next three episodes of special podcasts, the church, the church pre-COVID, during COVID, and what is it going to look like post-COVID? Now, let me just tell you on the front end, if you care at all, at any level, about the church, about the people of God, and them moving forward during this day, these podcasts will be important to you. If you're connected with a local church, you may want to suggest this to your pastor. I, I really ask you to do that. Um, it might uh, help them with their thought process. I know I've spent uh, probably a year, maybe a little over a year now, thinking and praying and studying on this and uh, what it all means and, and where we're headed. And if you're somebody who's just sort of interested in a peripheral way in the church, maybe you're not even a Christian, but you're just sort of wondering about Christianity and the church and what it might look like coming ahead, um, this these three podcasts, I think, will really help you figure that out. So we're going to start today with what did the church look like prior to COVID? I know it's hard to imagine the world pre-COVID. It just absolutely has dominated us in 2020 and is still dominating us now in 2021. So I want to go through just real quickly and catch you up to, you know, 2020 on the church. So we're going to have a little church history lesson here that I promise will go real fast. Now, there's a lot of theologians that will debate when the church began. Some people say it began when Jesus started preaching. Some people said it would begin in Acts when the Holy Spirit descended on the believers and baptized them in the Holy Spirit and the church moved out. Now, there are even some people that said the church age began way back in the Old Testament and God has simply changed language and um, not really the connection with people and how that works. So, however uh, you want to believe that, there's arguments to be made for all of that. I go with more of the Acts standpoint. I think when the Holy Spirit baptized those believers, uh, that began to change and did change um, how God operated uh, in the world with people and advancing the message of truth. So as the church began for the first, you know, probably 350 years, the church operated as an outlaw organization. Now, here's what I mean by that. Uh, the pastors would be murdered and killed. Remember, there were three big persecutions of the church from, started from, you know, AD 33, and they had persecutions all the way to about 349 when Christianity became the official religion of Rome. And some of those guys that persecuted the church, guys, you know, you know their name, people like Nero, Caligula, Diocletian. Diocletian, you might not know that name, but actually his persecution against the church was far more systemic, uh, organized, and detailed. Um, he would destroy copies of the Bible. He murdered uh, Christian pastors. He would burn down the houses of the wealthy who allowed churches to meet in their home. Diocletian's persecution was very complete and really very, very damaging. Now, it was during those days, however, that the Christian church grew. It just grew massively under persecution. I mean, uh, converts were popping up from every um, social strata uh, that was known, and, and it was multi-ethnic. People from every walk of life, from every country, were coming to know the Lord. It was an amazing time. But then, somewhere around 350, you have Constantine um, that made Christianity legal, and then, you know, about nine years later, it was declared the religion of Rome. Now, when it was declared the religion of Rome, we know the advancement of Christianity as far as converting lost people to the gospel slowed down. Why? Because it became institutional. 
now the Pope of Rome, as well as the, the, the leader, the Bishop of Rome, I should say, and the, and the Bishop of Constantinople had great power. They had resources. They had land. Now they could own land, build buildings. They could openly uh, accept gifts and money and, and donations and this kind of stuff. And it began to change the nature of the church. Now, as the church went on, uh, won't get into a lot of detail here, maybe another day, another podcast, but uh, Rome became the center of Christianity, not Constantinople. If you're from the Orthodox faith, you know that's a big thing. It's called the schism that happened, right, where where there became a Roman church as well as an Eastern church, which is, which is the Orthodox church. And um, the church really became, you know, sort of driven by the, the Western church or the Roman church. And in time, it became very autocratic, uh, a lot of centralized authority uh, with the uh, Bishop of Rome. Uh, there was a marriage that happened, very dangerous marriage that happened between uh, the church and the state. Charlemagne the Great, you remember Charlemagne, right? Uh, great king and, and leader uh, in Europe, uh, became the Holy Roman Emperor. How? Because he had a marriage, and some would say an unholy alliance, that happened between Charlemagne and Pope Leo III. He promised to give the church, Pope Leo III, lands and tithe money. And Leo promised to say Charlemagne is appointed by God and is now a holy Roman emperor. Not just a king, but anointed by God. Get the, get the picture? <laughs> so that happened. Now, all of that sort of moved along. And what happened over the next few hundred years is that culturally, legally, and spiritually, the Roman church, the Christian church at that time, was married to the state. So the fate of the state was the fate of the church. The fate of the church was the fate of the state. It was in a, just this alliance that was really straight. Now, around 1517, there was a guy named Martin Luther. He was an Augustinian monk, and he famously tacked his 95 subject areas, theses, on the Wittenberg Chapel door and said, I'd like to challenge Rome on these and that really launched the Reformation in earnest. Now, there had been some people prior to that who have translated some Bibles. They got burned at the stake, who started believing in confessional baptism. They got burned at the stake. <laughs> Get the picture? When the church and the state are married, uh, if the church disagrees with you, the state can pick up the gauntlet and take care of business for you. Are you with me? So, so the Reformation really goes on till about in the mid-1600s, 50s, 60s, and it, and it, um, takes different forms and different shapes in different countries. You have some of the leaders that rose out of that. Some of the names you'll know, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, um, Baron von Zinzendorf. I bet you didn't know that one. <laughs> and so uh, these guys rise up, and there are three big things that, that come out of the Reformation that matter as we get to 20th century America. First, they wanted a Bible for everyone. They just believed that everyone had the right and the responsibility to read the scriptures in their own language. Second is an issue called soul competency. Now, what that means is that every person is responsible to God for their salvation and the condition of their soul. You can't stand before God in the day of judgment and say, it's the pastor's fault. <laughs> it's the priest's fault. It's the Pope's fault. It's my Sunday school teacher's fault. No, it's the fault of that VBS director that didn't give me extra snacks. <laughs> I mean, you don't get to do that. You stand before God on your own. That's the idea of soul competency. Another aspect of soul competency is you don't need a priest to intercede for you before the Lord. You have the rights and the responsibility to do that for yourself. I mean, this is 
what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to pray, seek forgiveness, and commune with the Lord, you and the Lord. Jesus died for you. And so he wants an individual relationship with you. And and so you can't throw that responsibility off on someone else. So this is the idea of the soul competency. The third area, now there were many. Okay, so I'm I'm giving you the the three-minute synopsis of what went on for 150 years, and thousands of volumes of theology was written on, on reformational theology. So I'm just giving you three of the points. The, and really, I think the most significant is salvation is by faith alone through grace alone and is not authored, controlled, or dictated by an institutional church. In other words, you can find Christ driving down the road in your car. You don't have to be at a church receiving the sacraments, going through marriage, or in a confessional booth. You don't, you don't have to do that. You can receive Christ walking on the beach. You can be backpacking the Appalachian Trail. I'm in the eastern part of the United States, so the Appalachian Trail is you know, not too far from us. Beautiful hiking area. You can go hike and find the Lord there. It is a one-on-one salvation that comes because of God's grace, His favor on you. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. Now, there's an idea of grace with some people that says, well, once I do all I can do, God kicks in the rest. No. Grace says you can't even start, and God kicks in all of it (laughs) for you. And it's through faith alone, not through works of righteousness, not religious behavior. You could be a far better moral person than someone else and still die in your sins. It's not about moral perfectionism. It's about the resurrection of your spirit to life because of the grace of God, through your faith in what Christ did on the cross. So those ideas took root um, and still take root and have driven the church into the early 20th century. So here's what happens and what most of us would recognize just prior to COVID. Just prior to COVID, those theological underpinnings drove the church through to what's called evangelicalism. Now, evangelicalism really sort of started in the 1730s or 40s through what's called revivals. Some of you might not be familiar with that. A revival was a meeting, and they still hold revivals today, where a guy comes in who's a gifted evangelist, someone who can communicate the gospel very persuasively and very clearly. They'll have a bunch of music, some people will give testimonies, and then this person will get up and preach, and at the end of it, he'll ask you a very clear question. Would you like to receive Christ as your Savior today? Would you like to turn and repent from your sins and know the Lord personally? That's the root of evangelicalism. You see, during during the Reformation and up until the mid-1730s or 40s, people still believed that the institutional church had some input into you coming to know the Lord. Now, was it nearly as much as the Roman church? But it was still important. Now, let me just push the pause button and say this. I would say today, it is still vitally important that you find a local fellowship. It's vitally important that you experience the Lord's Supper on a regular basis. It is vitally important that you are baptized after your confession of Christ. Vitally important. The Lord marries these things to following him very clearly. So there's an expectation that you do it doesn't redeem you. It doesn't cause you to be a Christian, but is highly expected. So if you wouldn't do that, then the question would be, well, was your salvation real to begin with? So in the 1730s, evangelism started. Now, out of that, you had a lot of missionary efforts that spread all over the world, taking the gospel that Jesus Christ came from heaven, was born of the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life, 
died on the cross in our place, and on the third day he bodily resurrected. And if you will place your faith and trust in him alone, if you will believe that he resurrected from the grave and declare that he is Lord, you will be born again. So that message began to spread all over the world. So now let's come into probably the 1950s in America. In the 1950s, you have post-World War II. People were looking for meaning and purpose. And the, the roles of religious denominations, Christian denominations, exploded. Now, one was the baby boom. <laughs> one of the ways you can grow a church is biological growth, right? Just go have some kids and you have more backsides in the seat on Sunday. That's one of the ways it works, right? So you have exploding church roles of all denominations. And then a group of people began to say, well, you know, coming to church isn't really just a thing. You have to really know Christ. So they began saying, how do we begin to think about reaching a culture that is changing? Because right after the 50s were the 60s, culture took a big shift, right? Then after the 60s and 70s, again, culture took a big shift. In the 80s, it took a big shift. How did it do it? Well, some things happened. One was technology, right? You go pre-World War II and you, you had radio. That's That was your form of media. You go to today, and I don't I don't even have to tell you, right? You know, my my smartphone right here, my iPhone, whatever it is, 11 or 12, I don't know, I just got it. And it's a, it can do anything. It can do anything I would ever want. I, I broadcast from it every day. I take notes on it. I mean, y'all know this, right? I mean, it's, it's amazing. And so culture changed. And the first thing really was the driver was technology. It, second has been the morals and values. There used to be a lot of institutional um, uh, dependency and loyalty. People really were loyal on their institution, be it their place of work. It was not uncommon to find somebody to get one job out of high school or one job out of college and have it for 40 years until they retire. It is almost impossible to find someone with that story today. So institutional loyalties began to break down in jobs, began to break down in churches. People began as times went from the 60s to the 70s to the 80s to the 90s, and now the 2000s, and now, you know, 2021, people have become less and less loyal to their denominational past. So, you know, that's been a big thing. And the other thing, sort of culture that happened, is how people form and frame what they believe to be true or not has fundamentally changed. We used to get that institutionally. You go to school, you go to church, your parents talk about it, your grandparents talk about it, and you accepted it as true. Today, it is not that at all. People develop and decide what's true based upon their feelings more so than anything else. I feel like I should love this person, so everything they do should be right. I feel like this group of people should be able to do whatever they want, so I believe everything should be right for them to do it. And so we begin to shift our lives around and find places to land that validate what we feel and will then give a narrative of what we believe to validate our feelings. And and so this has happened all prior to COVID. And so what did the church, and then the other thing, let me just say this, um, the church became really good marketers. <laughs> I mean, they became really good marketers. It wasn't the old hymns from the 1700s that they were going to sing anymore. Nothing wrong with them. I like them. I still sing them today. But they said, you know what? We have a different generation. They don't know these hymns and the people who are unchurched don't know them. So let's do modern music. And there's nothing wrong with modern music. You cannot build a legitimate, credible argument that says modern music is bad as long as it's theologically sound and it's singable. 
I think it's fine for church. Well, that was replete throughout the Christian church. And it looked different everywhere you went. Uh, now, my background is Scotch, Irish, and English. So I have a bit of a disposition toward Scottish music and Irish music. And I'll tell you, there's some great Christian artists that are um, from Scotland and Ireland that in England that I listen to, and they're, they're phenomenal. Um, but that became sort of common within the church. The music changed because they wanted to address the culture and they wanted to speak the language of the people to draw them into church. Part of that evangelical movement. We want them to hear the gospel. Preaching styles changed. It used to be you open the Bible, started in James, and you preach through the Bible till you were then in James. And now pastors choose to uh, orchestrate uh, and organize their sermons differently. And again, nothing wrong with that as long as you stay true to the text. That was there. Um, how you dressed and how you went to church was different. It used to be the idea was God is supreme, high above all things. He is the greatest ever, right? So he deserves our best. And so people would wear their Sunday best, where it came from, to church. Now, that just doesn't matter. Again, not getting in a clothing argument, whatever. I, I, I get it. I, you know, I'm pretty casual too sometimes. So it's no big deal. Just saying that was the environment pre-COVID. The other thing, people went to church pre-COVID. It became popular because the church began to engage in these ways to have a church identity. Even if you didn't attend much, it was popular to have a church identity. Why? Because pre-COVID, there was still, you know, at least a neutral, you know, sort of mindset toward the church. That it was fine if you went, fine if you didn't. But even in that neutrality, if you went in many areas of, of our country, not everywhere, certainly not everywhere, but in many areas of our country, you got a little bit of a um, deferred to as someone who might be a little bit more upright and honest and hardworking. Not always, but in many places and around the world, there's places where that was true, probably not, not true anymore. So people had some sort of identity. Now, now so pre-COVID, you had churches that grew to massive sizes. Some of that through the work of the Spirit. Some of that through good marketing. Some of that through wise, I think, cultural, missionary thinking, identity with, with where they are. And, and so you have these huge churches that are not small gatherings of believers huddling against the, the persecution to come, but you have tens of thousands of folks joining together to hear a particular style of music, a particular pastor, and then walk out and, and live their lives. And again, I was a part of that at some level, not saying that in and of itself was necessarily bad, but it had become the church um, more culturally connected than what theologians call uh, Christocentric. In other words, centric on the person of Jesus Christ. So, the church prior um, to COVID was a church that was very wealthy, very big, very popular, very culturally connected, very cool, and very chic. Did God use that at times to bring people into the kingdom? Absolutely, he did. Will he use it today? Absolutely, he will. But understand that the church experienced a lot of freedom and a lot of connection. Now, you had people coming to church pre-COVID that went, some of them went to church because generationally they went to church. Now, some went to church because they weren't coming to know Christ and they wanted to connect with the local fellowship. 
Great. And you had some coming because they knew if they came, they could see somebody there who might help them in another area of their life. (laughs) Church sort of became a meeting place, sometimes a hookup place if you were single. (laughs) I know it's crazy to think of, but uh, I've been doing this 35 years. A lot of people come to church for hookups and it shouldn't be true, but sometimes it is. And so how does that affect then those ideas about giving? The church became a very popular place for people who have a um, charitable heart, who have a generous spirit, who philanthropic in some area of their life to plant their money. The church became very popular. The church became unbelievably wealthy. I saw a statistic a while back that said, if I remember it right, that they're guessing that church property in America could be worth over $100 billion. Just property. That's not talking about other assets. That is an amazing thing. Again, I don't think that's a bad thing, but that's the church prior to COVID. Now, people would give and they would give at a pretty high level. Um, There are churches, small churches in the rural parts of Texas. Maybe they'll have 100 people, but they'll have a budget of two or $300,000 a year. Now, I want you to think about that. Think about running a business and having only 100 customers, 100 clients, whatever it is, and having $300,000 a year. That is amazing. Now, many of these churches did great things with that money. They did. There's this. There are people over the world right now. I, this is just one ministry. They 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 go and they dig wells in Africa and in different parts of Africa where water is rare. They dig wells to find clean water for people to drink. And they'll do it for Muslim communities as well as Christian communities. Now, to be fair, they do it in Muslim communities to open a door to share the gospel. So. Don't get the idea that all this money was going to the church and it was going into the pastor's pocket and he was driving a Bentley. (laughs) There are a few of those, right? And and that's a sad thing. But um, far more people are are like where I am. You know, at 35 years, um, I've ridden a Bentley once and it was a a guy in California had it. So, you know, um, a lot of us uh, don't live that life. Matter of fact, 99%, and that's a fact, do not live that kind of life. But the church prior to COVID um, had a way of being very public and had a way of being very popular with certain people. So the church pre-COVID was this. It was legal. It was accepted. It was celebrated. It was wealthy. It could not be uh, Christologically centered, right? It could be sort of multifaceted in its vision. Right? It could be like that, and it was going to exist, and it was going to continue. But then COVID happened. And I wish and I hope and I pray you'll join us in our next episode so I can talk to you about the church during COVID, what shifts have happened. And I frankly think they're great shifts that have happened. All right? Well, come be with us next time here on Grace Free Journey, and let's continue to talk about the church pre-COVID, during COVID and post-COVID. Let me pray for you. Father, help us to even now connect with our local fellowships because it's your idea. Help us make them better, stronger, and advance the gospel through them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you. We'll talk next time. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Grace for Your Journey podcast. I pray that it has been a blessing and an encouragement to you. Pass it around if you think it would help somebody. And we look forward to you dropping by again for another episode of the Grace for Your Journey podcast.